0: Have you ever heard of smart growth or even the 15 minute city? Well, today we're going to be talking about city planning, that world of local government, where those kinds of decisions have a big impact on your life. We're also going to be talking about things such as transit and the growth of um, urban planning in a particular way that in fact uh, impacts your life greatly. We're also going to talk about housing. And in this world, you've probably heard about the 15-minute city. The whole idea that in an ideal world, we'll be able to walk to our, our, our corner store, work and play all in the same neighborhood, and it will be green and we'll be able to take transit everywhere. But is that a dream or is it an urban nightmare?
1: A clear path forward requires looking back and learning. Good public policy requires human connection, It's a consideration of the facts, applying common sense, and innovation. It's urban. It's rural. It's real life. We all have something to contribute. We all have a responsibility to get informed because there's a little piece of Canada in all of us, isn't there? Let's learn on this path together. This is Leaders on the Frontier.
0: Our next guest is uh, Randall O'Toole. He's the president of the Thoreau Institute and the Throw Institute is an um, articulate voice critiquing these kinds of policies. And Randall is an award-winning economist and analyst and author. So welcome, Randall O'Toole. Thank you. Um, Randall, we're, we're delighted to, to have you here today. Um, it's, it's interesting. Can you help us understand more about what a 15-minute city is and uh, I know I've heard about the, the the phrase smart growth for many years now. What do we really mean by this?
2: Well, let's, let's back up just a bit. Uh, urban planners don't understand how cities work. And so instead of trying to make cities work better, they imagine how they would like cities to work. And then they try to force that fantasy on the public and they're not very good at imagining things so what they do is they look at see and see how cities worked a hundred years ago before everybody had cars before we had uh expressways and freeways before we had internet before everybody was hooked up to electricity before we had all kinds of things that uh, we have today and they look at how cities worked 100 years ago and then they try to impose that on cities today and to some degree uh it's the the old uh phenomenon where uh, everybody wishes that they were in paris in the 20s and so they're just trying to recreate Uh, paris in the 20s in north american cities today but there's also this uh, environmental mystique that cars are bad and anything we can do to get people out of their cars is good no matter how much it costs, no matter how uh, 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 much it imposes on people. And since people didn't drive cars as much in the 20s because they didn't have cars, therefore if we make cities like the 20s, people will stop driving. And uh, I call it the cargo cult mentality. Uh, as, as you may know, during World War II, uh, the Americans occupied islands in the South Pacific and they had uh, landing fields and air traffic control towers and things like that. And their waste, the stuff that they threw out, uh, turned out to be things that were very valuable to the natives because they had never seen anything like those things before, like bags or uh, boxes or whatever. And so uh, when the Americans left, the residents of those communities thought, well, if we build fake control towers, and if we build airplanes out of straw to sit on the runways, that will get back all the things that we got when the Americans were here. And that's called cargo cult. And that's what uh, urban planners are doing. They're trying to recreate cities of the 1920s, thinking that that will make people change their transportation habits. And they'll take transit and ride bicycles and walk more like they did in the 1920s.
0: So so you've really um, opened my eyes up a little bit that the whole notion is that we have these planners. These are people in local government or all levels of government who are introducing a lot of policies. I mean, you've touched on everything, how we drive, um, how we live. Um, So a lot of this kind of makes sense. There's a lot of policies that kind of make up would you say smart growth is that kind of the the general header for all these kinds of policies that are really impacting our lives?
2: Yes, smart growth, the 15-minute city, complete streets, uh, new urbanism—all of these are terms that uh, are part of this urban planning philosophy. And the you know they call themselves smart growthers in public, but among themselves, they talk about new urbanists. Uh, but they, they like to use the term smart growth. It was specifically uh, developed so that they could blame anybody who didn't agree with their policies as being in favor
0: of dumb growth. Okay. So, so the, word, the use of these words is really important, aren't they?
2: Yes, they are. That's the one thing they're good at is coming up with great words. If you look up smart in the dictionary, the original definition of smart was a sharp stinging pain. And that's the definition I think they're using. they want to impose sharp pains on people to force them to stop driving to get them out of single family homes and into apartments and uh to get them to walk and only travel uh, within as far as they can go within 50, a fifteen minute walk
0: okay so I'm as a layperson i mean you're you're an expert that has studied this for years and i've I've seen this certainly. Over the years, in my own experience as a as a former elect, elected local official, but we often heard phrases such as "grow up," as in vertically, and "not out," like as an urban sprawl is bad, and "stack them and pack them." That was a kind of a um, a, cr- a crude way of describing it. That's all reflective of this way of thinking. This almost like it's an ideology, isn't it?
2: But, well, you can understand it because British Columbia is such a small place that there's a serious uh, risk that Vancouver is going to spread out and cover the entire province. Uh, Of course, I'm being sarcastic. British Columbia is gigantic. No kidding. uh, and, And Vancouver has absolutely no risk of covering the entire province. Uh, You know, it'll be thousands and thousands of years before we even have to think about that. Our population isn't even growing that fast anymore, the world population, much less Canada's population. And so there's no chance that urban sprawl is gonna cover up all the forests and farmlands and other lands in British Columbia. And yet they're running scared. And so they say, we have to grow up, not out. Well, here's the problem. Growing up is really, really expensive. And growing out, low density development is the cheapest kind of development there is. It's cheap in terms of urban services, but it's cheap in terms of the initial construction cost. A two story building costs a lot less to build than a five story or a 10 story building. And it's cheap in terms of operating costs. Mm-hmm. Guess what? It costs less to provide heat for a two story house than it does to, per square foot to provide heat for a uh, an apartment in a five or 10 story building.
0: No kidding. Well, the kind of apartments that we see in so many larger urban centers are um, easily 20 stories, 30 stories tall. And I guess what I'm fascinating about Randall is that in this kind of environment, though, are you are you saying that suburbs are good? I, I, I think of um, uh, the famous Joni Mitchell song, uh, they're going to you know, pave it over and make parking lots and, and all, these, all this kind of urban sprawl. Isn't, isn't that bad, Randall? Like, surely you're not an advocate for urban sprawl.
2: I'm an advocate for letting people live the way they want to live. And uh, surveys show that 80% of Americans, and I'm sure the same is true for Canadians, want to live in a single-family home. And they don't just wanna live in a single family home, they wanna live in a neighborhood of single family homes because such neighborhoods are quieter, there tends to be less crime, there's less traffic, less congestion. It's a much more pleasant place to be to raise your family or to have pets or, or just to relax. And the urban planners think that most urbanites should live in multi-family housing. And so they've done things like they've drawn an urban growth boundary around Vancouver and Seattle and Portland and Toronto and other cities across the country and then said you can't build outside of that and if you want your population to increase, you're going to have to tear down single family homes and build multifamily apartments. Well, guess what? People don't want to live in multifamily apartments. Maybe 20% do, but
0: the mm-hmm. 80% don't. Okay. But Randall, if if I take the opposing side a little bit, in Canada, are we not short or let alone in the world? Don't we want to preserve that agricultural farmland so that we can grow our food and, and have a future? I mean, surely um, you're not for just using up valuable agricultural land, are you? Uh.
2: Uh, Agricultural land is about the most abundant resource we have in North America. We have huge amounts of agricultural land. We only use a tiny fraction of it, about a third, for actually growing crops. The rest of it it lies fallow or it's used to uh, graze cattle or sheep or something like that. But uh, uh, it's uh, an extremely abundant resource. Forests are extremely abundant. We have more forests today than we did 100 years ago. Uh, And so there is no danger that urban sprawl is ever gonna cover all the agricultural or forest lands or even drive up farm or forest prices because urban sprawl has used up some of those farm or forest lands. So we're seeing planners deliberately making housing expensive in order to save something that is extremely abundant.
0: I don't want to oversimplify this, but there's almost like a fad, a school of thought, a way of thinking that has operated for years across a very important profession of people who are planners, who who make these decisions around where de- development should go and, and what our city should look like. Um, so in some ways, you're saying that we've gone overboard. Is that right?
2: No, I'm saying urban planners don't understand how cities work and so they try to impose their fantasies on other people. They've gone overboard and the problem is that if you're an elected official, if you're a city councilor or a mayor, um, you might have people from neighborhoods come in and talk to you once a month or so and you have the urban planners talking to you every day and just hammering on you that their policies are the right ones. They, and they use terms like sustainable and reducing greenhouse gas emissions and saving farmlands and all these other terms that really when you look at them closely turn out to be nonsense. But since they're there every day, those are the people that mayors and city councils and and uh, provincial legislators all listen to.
0: Okay, so I, th- I think what you're outlining here is is frankly for a lot of Canadians, it would be a shock for them to hear this, that we have a whole, frankly, a, a team of people working hard to really limit your choices about how you're going to live. And it's really increased um, the cost of living on, on every front from, from housing and so forth. So when you think of the cost of housing, then what is really driving the cost of housing um, and, and what are the solutions?
2: Well, the the, the main thing that's driving the cost of housing is urban growth boundaries. Vancouver has one. Winnipeg doesn't. Housing is affordable in Winnipeg. It's not affordable in Vancouver. When you draw an urban growth boundary, what happens is if you're Uh you're an economist, you understand a word called elasticity. What elasticity says is if demand rises, will will the producers be able to respond by increasing the supply. If they are, then it's, then a good is called elastic. And in places like Winnipeg and Houston mm-hmm. that don't have urban growth boundaries, the supply of housing is elastic because if demand increases, builders can build more. They can build more really fast because they don't have to mm-hmm. go through long permit periods. They don't have to go find land because there's lots of land available and they can do it. If you're in Vancouver or in Seattle, where you've got an urban growth boundary and virtually all the land in the boundary has already been developed, there's no new land that developers can build on. Getting permits to tear something down and build something else is really time consuming and uh, it's really expensive. They've got all kinds of fees. And so, uh, so supply is not elastic. When the supply isn't elastic, A small increase in demand can lead to a large increase in price and a small decrease in demand can lead to a large decrease in price. So housing prices become a lot more volatile and you don't know when you're going to need to buy or sell a house. You probably will end up buying the house when everybody else wants to buy and prices are high. And then when you want to sell, everybody else wants to sell and prices are real low and you lose a lot of money. So it no longer becomes uh, a good investment to buy a home like it was before urban planners got their hands on
0: on cities. Exactly. So in this context, though, um, Randall, um, this has massive implications for people's daily lives. I think of not just the, the price of housing, but also I would say, or would you say, on our culture um the way we we think about our future i i bumped into a young couple yesterday um and they're in the um the vancouver area and they're actually moving to manitoba because they don't see themselves as having a future they just can't begin to afford a home and so they're they're thinking strategically like i've got to move out of this community and move somewhere else where i can afford it so that impacts people's lives in a big way in terms of how they are willing to to develop their families and and contribute to the community because these things have a big impact on their lives.
2: Yes, and it gets into everything. I mean, you look at cities 100 years ago and you say, well, where are the supermarkets? Well, there weren't any. There were little teeny grocery stores that had about 1,000 different products on their shelves, whereas today the average supermarket has 30 to 40,000 different products on their shelves, you have a lot of choice. You can go in and whether you want to be a vegan or vegetarian or carnitarian or pescatarian, or uh, you you want gluten-free or whatever, you can find it in a supermarket. But if you want to live in a 15-minute city where you can only go to a grocery store that's within 15 minutes of where you live, Well, that grocery store isn't going to serve very many people because even in the densest city there aren't enough people to uh fund a supermarket within 15 minutes of that supermarket so the grocery store is going to have maybe two or three thousand products on its shelves uh there's going to be a narrow range of selection and prices are going to be high because that supermarket's not or that grocery store is not gonna have a lot of competition. There certainly isn't room for two grocery stores within 15 minutes of walking of your home. However, within driving, within 15 minutes of driving, you can probably find three or four major supermarkets, and those major supermarkets are gonna have huge selection, and they're gonna be fiercely competi- competing against one another on price and selection, and providing you with the freshest, best foods available. and. I'd much rather live in a world where I have people competing for my business than where uh, people know that I'm stuck with them because I can't get anywhere else.
0: Okay. So this is uh, big implications on people's lives, how our cities are designed by urban planning, and it needs to change. It's interesting. One of the, the observations I have, and, and it seems like it's all interrelated. It's almost, Randall, you've opened our eyes up today about how these decisions have huge impacts like a like a domino effect on our lives and one of them i think of is is the whole area of automobile congestion Um, there's some large cities uh in canada where you frankly like let's say we go to toronto uh where they have this massive green belt all around the city so it's increased the price of housing but meanwhile you can barely travel in a vehicle um, anytime between the hours of 6 a.m. till 9 or 10 in the morning. And then on the other end of the day, you can, you can barely travel between 3 to 7 o'clock. So I think of the impacts that has on people's lives. So people can't almost go to work. They spend a lot of time in their vehicle. Um, they can't volunteer in their community because they're, they're so busy commuting. But also they have less time with their families and life is just not affordable. They're getting taxed at the pump um, where half the cost of, of gasoline, all in the name of net zero and climate crisis, is, is almost, dare I say, it's almost like they're on a mission to make life unaffordable and unlivable. Am I being too, too bleak in my, my kind of summary there, Randall?
2: I think you're right that a lot of the congestion that we see in our cities today is deliberate. The planners have decided that we should drive deliberate. So they've stopped building roads and instead, or expanding the capacity of roads uh, or doing other things that will relieve congestion. And instead they want to put all of our transportation dollars into urban transit and bike lanes and things like that. So, uh, for example, the most cost effective thing you can do to relieve congestion, it costs very little and it does an enormous uh, amount to relieve congestion, is traffic signal coordination. With coordinated traffic signals, it's po- it, it, it can make it possible to drive from one end of a city to another without having to stop for red lights. And Uh, cities used to be into doing traffic signal coordination, but now they say, well, if we coordinate traffic signals, that'll just encourage people to drive. We used to see signs that say, "Signals set for 30 miles an hour. So if you drove at a consistent 30 miles an hour, you wouldn't have to stop at red lights. Now I've actually seen signs in cities that say, "Signals set to require frequent stops. They deliberately uncoordinated the traffic signals in order to increase congestion. So here we have something that would be a way of reducing congestion, and they deliberately subvert it so that it won't work. That's basically what urban planning is all about. It's about manipulating people to get them to do what the urban planners want to do rather than what the people want to do.
0: That's a great segue to, frankly, we've got to really rethink Downtowns. I think that's very true historically from certainly my own experience and observations across the country with local government. There's almost an obsession around um, trying to preserve downtowns the way they function at the turn of the century. And it's really not helpful. So they have to be reimagined. So if you were in charge for a day, what would you do uh, to reimagine our downtowns? Downtowns were built in human
2: history for only about 50 years, from about 1880 to 1930. If you say to somebody just one word, if you say the word city, in their heads, they will imagine a place that has a downtown with big, tall skyscrapers surrounded by low-rise development, and they will imagine everybody living in these low-rise Uh, suburban areas and then driving to downtown or taking transit to downtown to their jobs, even though 94% of the jobs aren't in the downtown. So we have this myth of a downtown that was based on this 50 year period. No downtowns were built before 1880. No downtowns really have been built without subsidies since 1930. And so the idea we need to save downtowns, that's like saying we need to save the telegraph industry or we need to save outhouses. It's (laughs) not enough that everybody has a, a toilet in their house. We need to make sure that everybody is within a quarter mile of an outhouse. That's like saying we need to be that's, and, and the urban planners are essentially saying that. They say, we need to have everybody within a quarter mile of a light rail line. We need to have everybody be able to get to a high density downtown uh, without dealing with a lot of traffic. So they build light rail instead of freeways, wow. and we end up with more congestion instead of less.
0: Wow. So if we look at the situation, and it has huge impacts as we've outlined uh, on people's lives, particularly working people, poor people, um, it affects our costs and, and our choices and the, the kind of quality of life we can live. What kind of action can we take as citizens? Um, what should we be doing so people can look to the future uh, with with confidence that they can build their their lives? What what action would you recommend we take?
2: Well, the most important thing to do in British Columbia is get the, uh, the parliament to uh, eliminate uh, abolish the planning laws that allowed the Greater Vancouver Authority to give, get all the its power. Just abolish that authority, and those planning laws apply so, to the. This entire is province.
0: this is across Canada, right?
2: Well, see, I'm I'm starting mm-hmm. with British Columbia because it has the strictest planning laws in the country, uh, and then you know, uh, mm. Ontario has laws that aren't as strict but are there and those need to be repealed. I would say um, in uh, Manitoba, it probably doesn't. In Saskatchewan, they probably have very few planning laws like that. I haven't done a province by province examination, but uh, I don't think there's any problems there. The main problem in Alberta is transportation. Both Edmonton and Calgary are focused on light rail, which as we've explained, is really expensive and doesn't, can't move as many people as buses. Uh, and to generate light rail ridership, I suspect that they're trying to get high density development along the light rail lines, which isn't the way people want to live. People don't move to Alberta so they can live in a mid-rise or high-rise housing project. Uh, so Alberta, and particularly Calgary and Edmonton, need to get away from this point of view Uh, and uh, uh, let people live the way they wanna live. So it's different by province, but uh, I don't think the the federal government in Canada has as much of a role, although it did fund the Ottawa light rail and some other light rail lines, which was a big mistake. Uh, It needs to get out of that and let the provinces govern the cities and let the, and the provinces in turn to let the cities decide what they want to be and not try to impose a vision on those cities.
0: Well, well said. Uh, Randall O'Toole, we're so glad that you could join us today and challenge us about our thinking around cities as well as transportation. Well, thank you for having
1: me. Thank you for watching Leaders on the Frontier. We're a nonpartisan think tank. We explore ideas, policy and practical solutions That can make a difference in the lives of Canadians. We do not accept any government funding. We work for you. Thank you for supporting Frontier. Visit fcpp.org to give. While you're there, be sure to check out our latest articles and research. Without open discussion and debate, you're not thinking, nor are you free. Comment below. We'd love for you to join the conversation.